0: Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform. My name is Sophia Besch, and I'm here today with Charles Grant, the Director of the Centre for European Reform, and with John Springford, who is a Senior Research Fellow here at the CR. Hi Sophia. We're Hello. here to talk about uh, Prime Minister David Cameron's EU reform deal, the special settlement for Britain that was negotiated in Brussels late last Friday night. And uh, I think first, let's talk about the actual outcomes of the deal. Charles, what were David Cameron's objectives going into the negotiations? And concretely, what were his wins for Britain last week? And where did he have to make concessions?
1: Well, when he initially said he was going to renegotiate Britain's membership with the EU in 2013, three years ago, he had very wide-ranging ambitions to really change the nature of that relationship and the way the EU works. As time went on, he saw he wasn't going to be able to change very much, at least in the short term, so he lowered his ambitions and he made a big totem of his idea that uh, EU migrants shouldn't be able to claim in-work benefits for four years. He particularly focused on that. He also focused on giving the City of London safeguards against the risk of Eurozone caucusing. And on the first of those, I think he did... Uh, better than I thought he would get. He's got this so-called emergency break which he can pull, which means that if, when once it's pulled, um, for up to seven years it can endure and you can uh, stop EU migrants claiming the full amount of in-work benefits uh, for four years. They, gradually the benefits are phased in the longer a, a worker the country that calls the break. I think he did relatively well there. Of course, it won't change the numbers of migrants, but it allows him to say that the um, the, the system of benefits for immigrants migrants is fairer than it was. Um, on, as for the other point on the safeguards of the City of London against the risk of Eurozone caucusing, he hasn't got a veto. He knew he couldn't get a veto. He's got a delaying mechanism, uh, another emergency break, confusingly. Uh, he can pull that. One country can pull that, and that's causes uh, a decision that could damage the city or other wider British interests or the interests of other countries not in the Euro. It causes a decision to be delayed. It can kick it up to the European Council where its review is not ultimately a veto. Um, He's also got some language uh, to ensure that non-Eurozone countries don't have to pay for Eurozone bailouts, that the uh, Eurozone meetings and the Eurogroup shouldn't discuss matters of relevance for the whole 28. And you've got a provision that the countries not in the euro don't have, to have exactly the same rules for financial regulation as those in the euro. This is fairly minor stuff, and it probably won't won't have a huge impact in the real world. I would suspect.
2: And um, I, I think I I agree with with a lot of that. I just wanted to pick up a little bit on the um, migrants' emergency break and. Um maybe we could just have a little bit of a, a discussion, Charles, about, about whether we think that there are some risks to that or not. I think there's a little bit of complacency um, uh, that essentially the passage of this emergency break will be reasonably straightforward, um, at least in, in Britain. Um, and I think that there are some risks to it because it's still pretty vague about what it means um, and what's got to happen is that the Commission has got to propose um, a, uh, a regulation um, in order to, to pass this into law. Um, and then the European Parliament has uh, got to agree to it. This will probably happen after the referendum. Um, and it's still very unclear to me what, what constitutes an emergency why? Why um, Britain is essentially facing an emergency, and why this break should therefore be pulled. And I expect there to be a lot of discussion um, and toing and froing um, when uh, that new rule is put together by the Commission to try and to to, to decide. Uh, Why um, and exactly what trigger or what mechanism constitutes an emergency. And the reason for that is because, um, as it stands, um, there's no provision in the text, in the declaration that came out of the summit, saying that other member states, um, that this will not apply to other member states. Um, And other member states are are, are probably, particularly those who uh, have received a fair, fair number of immigrants. From central and eastern europe are probably going to want to pull this too so i expect there to be a bit more politicking about that over the over the next few months
1: i'm slightly more optimistic from cameron's point of view john on that one i think you're right does have to go through the parliament there will be huffing and puffing in the parliament but i think the leaders of the most important groups in the parliament have indicated they will support this idea of an emergency break although they don't particularly like it but they may quibble on the detail, but I'll actually draw attention to another potential difficulty um, for Cameron in convincing the British that his break is going to work, which is the European Court of Justice, because uh, some people may say that this system is indirectly discriminatory. It it judges, it, it treats citizens from countries other than the UK differently from those of the UK in trying to withhold some benefits from them. And I think there may be challenges in the European Court of Justice. Uh, Usually the court is quite political, and if the heads of government have given the guidance that they support this measure, the court is highly unlikely to go against it, but there could be worries for Cameron on that front and I would expect challenges in the court at some
2: point. I think I think we can agree though that um, in terms of what this means materially in terms of the number of migrants and also the amount of money that Britain will spend on uh, welfare for migrants, we're talking about something which is very small. It's only going to be in effect for seven years um, and migrants will slowly get access to benefits over four years the The vast majority of them don't claim benefits in that first, in those first four years in any case. So we're 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 talking about something which is marginal, really, to free movement in terms of its impact on on Britain's labour market and uh, and welfare state.
0: Agreed. Right. Um, speaking about future challenges that arise from this deal, maybe we should, we should uh, move on to the rest of Europe for a minute and uh, talk about how this reform deal is perceived in Brussels and in the other European capitals. So. Poland and Greece and France and Belgium as well have all been particularly vocal in their demands. Do you think that they are happy with the deal as it is now, John?
2: Um, no. I think all most
1: <laughs> governments can live with it because, frankly, the deal is not transformative, doesn't change the fundamentals of how the EU works. Therefore, although it has things that annoy people, uh, particularly the Belgians don't like the British getting an opt-out from ever closer union... Some of the Central Europeans are uncomfortable with restrictions on the benefits their citizens can receive, and the eurozone countries are worried that, when it comes to protecting the uh, uh, the non-euro countries against eurozone caucusing, that uh, conceivably the British could try and create problems for their efforts to secure the future of the euro. There, there are quibbles, but frankly, it doesn't, given that there has been no repatriation of powers to Britain, that the fundamental principles of the EU have not been affected think they can live with it. But if there is a residue of of annoyance left uh, amongst Britain's partners. The way that Cameron handled this, they, they see it, some of them, as a kind of blackmail, that he said, look, if you don't give us these reforms, you know, we might leave the EU and then you'll be sorry, which is actually a, a description of the of the facts. But nevertheless, it came across the sum as a kind of blackmail threat. And I think when people in Britain need to understand that um, those outside Britain and other parts of Europe have have had their goodwill towards Britain strained. And it was evident in the negotiations that some governments in some countries, I'm thinking of Belgium, for example, appeared not to be terribly sad at the prospect
2: of Britain leaving the EU. <laughs> um, I, I just want to draw our attention to, to the two financial Questions that came out of the uh, the summit declarations. So I hope I won't be too b- too boring about it. <laughs> um, but um, on on the finance emergency break that Charles discussed at the beginning, um, where Britain can essentially um, delay measures by by elevating them to the council. I mean, I think that probably um, someone like France, who who led the charge um, in in trying to protect the interests of the eurozone ins against the outs during the summit, I think that they're they're going to be reasonably okay. Um, basically, because there's no veto, um, the rule gets pushed up to the council, um, and um, but QMV still applies in the council. Um, uh, qual- the qualified qualified majority voting still applies in the council on new rules, so um, so uh, that means that the eurozone has a built in qualified majority because it's um, it, it's now um, such a uh, so many of the countries in the EU. So ultimately, the eurozone still has the ability to determine um, what financial rules are. Um, so ultimately, this hasn't strengthened uh, the UK's hand in voting, at least in the Council, uh, when it comes to uh, the rules governing the financial sector. But on the, on the other hand, on the single, single rulebook, um, whether we should have a single set of rules governing all financial institutions in the Eurozone and outside the Eurozone, um, I wonder if uh, France will be a little more unhappy... Because it does, um, the text of the deal does allow um, some differences in prudential rules for the financial sector between the outs and the ins. Um, And France is worried that this will give the UK a competitive advantage. I think these. Uh, these fears are exaggerated because the UK has gone from being a fairly light touch regulator of its financial system to one which is um, a lot tougher uh, since the financial crisis Um, but for France I think I think that the fact that difference of treatment um, is now is now allowed however minor um, that this is a bit of a loss for them.
0: Um, Should we get into what this deal really means for Britain in Europe then? Um, I think it's fair to say that Cameron set out to achieve at least two things with his renegotiations in Brussels. First, in the European context, to give Britain more control over its own affairs within the EU, to boost the British and the European economy, and to curb immigration. And secondly, in the British context, the goal was certainly to convince the British people and his own party that a Brexit would be a bad idea. Um, what is your take on this? How successful was he on both those fronts?
2: Um, well, I think
1: on the um, trying to convince his party to back uh, staying in the EU, he's been less successful than he hopes he would be. It's now emerging that at least half the Conservative members of Parliament will back out. That's more than I expected, actually, and it's more, certainly more than Number Ten expected. I think the coordinated onslaught on the draft text when it appeared on February the 2nd and then on the final text we had at the weekend by the Eurosceptic Press, the tabloid press has been quite shocking even by the tab- British tabloid press's own standards. They've really tried very hard to tell the British public this deal is is, is nothing or virtually it's peanuts. Uh, and I think this message has, has resonated with some of the British public and it's helped to persuade a lot of Tory MPs who were expecting, perhaps, uh, to back the prime minister, in the end not to back back the prime minister. One of those, of course, is Boris Johnson, the the very popular and influential mayor of London. So I think this deal is not having the effect that Cameron hoped it would. That said, he understands this, and therefore he's going to step over the deal. And he's already starting to talk about the merits of EU membership itself, which puts him on stronger territory. And I think, you know, the battle is not lost.
2: I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, the, the one thing that I would just point out is that um, Charles said at the beginning that, that Cameron sensibly lowered his ambitions over the course of the last two years. I mean, before his, um, his speech on migration in 2014, he was considering insisting on quotas for EU migrants um, so, that, so that Britain could essentially try and lower the numbers of people who came not just the amount of money that they that that they were able to receive in welfare. Um, and the, you know, we've seen with Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove's arguments for Brexit that came out over the weekend that a lot of what's motivating the Conservative Party uh, Eurosceptics. Um, is the desire for more sovereignty. And I think one thing that's come out of the negotiations this weekend is it's, it's pretty clear that if you're a member of the single market, um, then the system of shared sovereignty through rules... Um, in order to allow economic agents, be they migrants, be they firms, be they investors, to be able to move around the single market and um, invest or work wherever they want, that basically that principle is untouched, and that means that Britain has to has to share sovereignty if it wants to remain within the single market, um, and so I think what looking forward to the referendum, what's been made clear is that. Um, Either Britain. Britain is basically not going to be able to have a halfway house where it has more sovereignty but, but still full participation in the single market. And so the referendum is essentially now on British people, do you think that we should share sovereignty in order to be able to have market access or do you think that we should leave in order to be able to gain sovereignty but lose the level of market access that we have?
0: Right. I think we're going to end here for today, but uh, here at the CR, we will definitely continue to discuss these questions in the coming weeks. Thank you very much to Charles and John for both of your time.
2: Thanks, Sophia.